turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. As you can see by the title, it is a chapter full of parables, so we're going to read the whole chapter. Luke 14. Let's pray for God's blessings. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, uh, we might hear your voice. Lord Jesus, speak to us as your dearly loved people, purchased with your blood. And Holy Spirit, we pray uh, that you would come and make these words uh, real and alive in our hearts and in our hearing today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And most of this chapter uh, occurs at this dinner event. All right. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man who once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and uh, deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There are four uh, teaching sections in this chapter, and we'll just go through them one by one, and then consider uh, some points of application by way of conclusion. The first has to do with the healing of the man on the Sabbath in verses 1 through 6. In verse 3, Jesus asks the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, uh, if you were paying attention in verse 1, we're told that they were watching him carefully. They weren't watching him carefully to see what he would do. They were watching him carefully because they desired to trap him, as was often the case. But with this question, Jesus turns the tables On them. Apparently, uh, they uh, planted the sick man there for the purpose of trapping Jesus, but Jesus turns the tables and puts them in a trap. This question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not, uh, is not a rhetorical question, but it's one that obviously sets the trap for those who are watching Jesus, hoping to trap him. If they answer that it is not, uh, I'm sorry, that it is legal, lawful to Uh, heal on the Sabbath, then they have broken their own understanding of the law, which prohibited any acts of mercy to be done on the Sabbath. So if they answer yes, they would be contradicting their own understanding of the fourth commandment. If they answered no, then they would be demonstrated to be merciless, right, Uh, and heartless. Uh, And in verse 6, we see they could not reply to these things. They were dumbfounded and silenced by Jesus' question. Jesus, therefore, uh, without uh, much ado, wins the argument, and they are shown to be hypocrites. What I want you to note here, all right, is that all it took for Jesus to exercise love and compassion was to see someone in need. That tells us something very important about Jesus, all right? We ought not to be so fixed on the teaching of Jesus that we miss the person of Jesus, that we come to know him better, that we come to appreciate him more. For those of us that are Christians, that we come to love him more for who he is and what he does. All it took for him to exercise love and compassion was to see someone in need. Are you in need? Are you in need? Then Jesus extends that love and compassion to you. His heart goes out to you if you would but respond. In verses 7 through 14, the ESV, if you're looking at it, calls it the parable of the wedding seats. I uh, I like to refer to it as the wedding feast. I like to refer to it as the parable of reserved seats, all right? So you need to explain how people, sorry, I need to explain to you um, how people ate at a feast, all right? There would be um, a three-sided table, which would not be totally unusual if you were to go to a feast or a banquet today. And the host would sit at the top 
of the table, all right? And uh, Jesus did this at the Last Supper. Sometimes you see portrayals of this by da Vinci and others. It's not accurate. This is actually what it would have been. It was called a triclinium, all right, uh, a seating arrangement. And the low place at table was to sit all the way down here or all the way down here um, at the end, all right? Uh, the high place at table would have been right next to the host. You'll remember Jesus, for example, had John reclining at his breast. That was the favored place to be, all right? So the idea is about places of honor, the reserved seats. Look at verse 11, all right? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The point here, all right, is not so much seating, but Jesus uh, is impressing and stressing upon his hearers humility, all right? That what you ought to seek for as you arrive at a banquet or a feast like this is not honor, prominence, status, but humility, all right? And notice again Jesus' love and compassion to those in need, for the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, all right? But if you look at verse 12, you can see what actually was done, right? <clears throat> he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives and your neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. This was reciprocity. You invite me this weekend, I'll invite you next weekend, right? You be good to me, I'll be good to you. Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. This is the parable of the rejected invitation. All right? <clears throat> All right? Um, he goes on and he talks about the invitation. Um, when one of those reclined the table heard, uh, I'm sorry, uh, when you, verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, then you will be blessed. For they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Somebody breaks out upon hearing this in verse 15. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus takes that opportunity to respond to that interjection with another lesson. And this is the lesson or the parable of the rejected invitation. All right? Read on, verse 16. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Now, you may or may not be aware, all right, <clears throat> That in the Gospels, what's going on is that Jesus comes for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, all right? And when he sends out his disciples, he tells them, don't go to the Gentiles. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You'll recall that in John chapter 1, John tells us he came to his own and his own received him not. My point in mentioning these things to you is that what's going on in the Gospels is Jesus dealing with the Jewish people, all right? So as you hear this, all right? He's speaking about and he's speaking to Jewish people, okay? So you need to understand that. Read on. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who have been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Uh, please, please has me excused. Please excuse me. Well, this is transparently false, all right, this excuse. Why? Because no one would have bought a field without inspecting it first, right? 
You go and buy a car, you kick the tires, you check it out. Uh, the Santanas just bought a house. They hired an inspector to come and check out the house. They wouldn't have bought it and invested all that money without inspecting the house first. Same thing with the field. Nobody would have bought a field without inspecting it first. So it's already inspected, right? You get the point? The excuse is transparently false, right? And even if it was true, it could have waited. It didn't make a valid reason not to attend the banquet that you would have been invited to. Or look at verse 19, right? Another said, I abide five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. This is the same thing. Nobody would have bought oxen without expecting them first. Are they healthy? Are they diseased? Are they going to be a good animal? Is it going to be a bad animal, right? And again, even if that was a valid excuse and it hadn't been expected, it could have waited. It doesn't warrant rejecting the invitation. Or verse 20. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, if you're a very good student of the Bible, and you'd have to be a very good student of the Bible to understand what's going on here, all right? In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5, you can look it up later. We don't need to turn there. The provision by God was that if you got married, you were exempt for a year from military service. It's a nice deal, right? It's kind of a honeymoon gift, right? You get married, you can't be sent off to war. Right? Why? Because you have time to be with your wife, consummate the marriage, maybe have a child, all things well and good. God's very concerned for people that are newlywed, right? Okay? So this is apparently the excuse that's being raised, right? What does he say? He said, um, uh, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Well, you're free from military service, according to Deuteronomy, but you're not isolated from social events. It's not as if you live in your honeymoon cottage for a year, all right? That's not what Deuteronomy is saying. So again, the excuse is valid, right? But look at verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, all right, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, bringing the poor, the crippled, the blind, and lame. Third time we've seen this, all right? And then uh, the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. There's still room. Verse 23. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, what I prefaced this section by saying earlier, I hope becomes obvious. Who are those who have been invited? The ones who have been invited are the Jewish people. They are God's covenant people. They are the ones with whom he has established a relationship. They are the ones whom he has called into a relationship with himself. They are the covenant people. They are, if you will, the chosen people, right? God refers to them as his children. God refers to them as the elect, right? They've been invited to come to the great banquet but they have all kinds of excuses not to come. And what does Jesus say? Those who were invited and refused to come will not be at the banquet. This is a pronouncement of judgment upon Israel. He came to his own, his own received him not. And judgment is pronounced upon them for not recognizing the day of God's coming to them in the person of Jesus, for not recognizing and acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the promised and prophesied king, 
and for not believing in and trusting themselves to him who alone could forgive their sins and reconcile them to God. They won't be at the banquet because they made all kinds of excuses. If God's gracious invitation is refused and rejected, then those who were previously invited were, are rejected. Look at verse 24. For I tell you, you see that little four there? Look down at the footnote reference. The you is plural. All right? He's not speaking to me. He's not speaking to you, Richard, or to you, Cotto, right? He's speaking to you, to all those who are there in his hearing. He's speaking to Jewish people. He's speaking to Israel. And he says, you will not taste my banquet. You will be excluded. To turn to a different emphasis here, it's worth noting that there is a wideness in God's mercy, his love, and his grace. Yes, Jesus came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yes, Jesus came and told his disciples not to go to the Gentiles, to go only to the house of Israel, right? But the point is, is that, look at verse 23. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. The cripple, the lame, the blind, those who are the outcasts of the society of Jesus' day, those who were rejected, those whom everybody in Israel thought were cursed for their physical maladies, right? Go out to them. And then, of course, eventually the gospel goes, make disciples of all nations to the Gentiles. So let no one say that God's love and grace and mercy is miserly, that God is cheap. There's a wideness in God's mercy. This is, this is an astonishing passage that Jesus says, compel them to come in until my house is full. Elsewhere in the Gospels, you may know it, <clears throat> the question is asked uh, of Jesus, are there few that be saved? Many people, particularly in Reformed circles, have answered that question in the affirmative. Yes, there are only a few that be saved. Oh, the elect, oh, the frozen chosen. And then they think highly of themselves. Well, God chose me. He didn't choose you. Uh uh uh. Be careful. Look at Romans chapter 11. Just rather than your pastor talking to you, let the scripture talk to you. Romans chapter 11. Again, Jew and Gentile. So, let me just set the stage here, all right? You may or may not be a very good student of the Bible. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed that is by faith uh, from, to faith, right? Uh, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Romans 1, 16, 17, 18, right? And Paul lays the groundwork there for the next 10 chapters of the book of Romans. He's going to expound and he's going to explain and he's going to explicate 
what this gospel that he's just talked about in verses 16 through 18 is all about. So we get to chapter 1, verse 18, right? And we see that in... uh, that the wrath of God is revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And who is the rest of chapter 1 taken up with? It's taken up with Gentiles, right? And he talks about the godlessness and the wickedness of Gentiles, unbelieving people, non-Jews, non-covenant members, not unchurched members if we use contemporary language. And everybody is like, yeah, 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 go get them, yeah, yeah, until he comes to chapter 2. And then he says, oh, you Jews... You Jews who have the law, do you obey the law? No, you're sinners just like the Gentiles are. The point is, Paul's making the point that both Jew and Gentile are in need of God's grace. Don't think that you can say just because you're God's elect people that you uh, are in uh, like Flint. No, you also need the gospel. You also are a sinner. You also need to confess your sin and trust in the Savior. Then we get to chapter 3, right, in chapter 4. Abraham, Paul says, what I'm telling you is nothing new. Abraham, same message that was given to Abraham. And he goes back to the time of Abraham. Then you get to chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, right? Paul is spelling this all out. And you get to chapter 9, and Paul begins to entertain a different question altogether. Question 9, the question that Paul is entertaining from his hearers, right? He's going on and on. This is nothing new. This was always the case. It was the case with Abraham. It's the story of the whole Bible. But Paul, if what you're telling us is true, why don't the Jewish people believe? And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul has to answer that question. If what I am telling you is not new, is not novel, is not unique, is not something that I fabricated or dreamed up, but it's something that all the prophets and all the promises and all the uh, prophecies and the scriptures have been communicating to you, then how do we account for the unbelief of the Jewish people? And Paul explains that. I'm not going to go into depth or detail. But look at chapter 11, verse 1, if you're open to it. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And he says, I'm a Jew. I believe. So God has not rejected everyone, right? And then verse 11, kind of cut to the chase here. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Oh, the wisdom of God, right? God takes from Israel, and he says, I'm going to give it to the Gentiles, and I'm doing that to make them jealous that all the blessings which you have experienced throughout all the prophets and promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, they're now going to be evident, manifest, seen in the Gentiles and not with you, so that you become jealous, right? Read on. Now, if their trespass meant riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Oh. They're going to be brought back at some point, and that awaits the future. There's going to be a great infusion of Jewish people into the church. They will look upon the one whom they have pierced in the Messiah, Jesus, and they will mourn for their sin, and they will cry out for mercy, and God will receive them, and they will come into the church, and Jew and Gentile will be one people worshiping God for all eternity. More about that another time. Here's the point, verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. 
Inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance uh, mean but life from the dead? Uh, Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, Israel is the olive tree, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in to the one tree, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, here's the point. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you must stand faith. You stand faith through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. So I hope you catch the point after that lengthy explanation. Pardon me for being so long there. But you need to understand the context of what Jesus is teaching here. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't call yourself the chosen frozen. Don't think that God chose you because he didn't care for anybody else. Compel them to come in until it's full. And don't you dare be arrogant and proud. There is nothing more, I've said this before, I'll say it again till the day I die, there is nothing more oxymoronic than a proud Calvinist who looks down their noses at everybody less theologically erudite. Let's go on to the cost of discipleship. Verse 25 and following. Verse 28. For which of you desiring it? To build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost. Verse 31, or what king going out to another encounter another king in war does not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. The point is simply this, count the cost. Jesus is speaking to his hearers, perhaps to those who are receptive and responsive to him. And in essence, he says, look before you leap. Count the cost. What's the cost of being a disciple? Well, look, verse 26. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and comes after me cannot be my disciple. Now, every time I come across this saying, I have to explain it because not everybody has heard me explain it before. And even if you had, repetition is the teacher's friend. The cross that Jesus is talking about here is not some form of terminal sickness. 
I have terminal leukemia or pancreatic cancer, and that's the cross God has given me to bear. No. It is not your mother-in-law, no matter how difficult that relationship may be. Oh, she's the cross God has given me to bear. Those who heard Jesus say this were well aware of what the cross was. You see, in today's, just very important in terms of counting the cost, all right? We in the Christian church today, we've, we've trivialized the cross. We make it an ornament for bracelets and necklaces. If you're wearing one, I'm not condemning you for that. But we've forgotten what the cross was, that the hearers Jesus is speaking to knew full well. The cross was an instrument of death. And it was a horrific form of death. It was reserved for the lowest of the low criminal. If you were crucified, they would put the nails through your hands or your wrist. We don't want to get too specific about this. And through your feet, right? And you would hang on the cross. Now, if you've ever had to hang, maybe doing pull-ups or something like that, and try to breathe, you know the difficulty that's involved in that. The whole weight of your body is down upon your, whatever this is, your sternum or, or something. What is it? Diaphragm. Diaphragm. Thank you very much. That one, and that didn't even come from one of the doctors in the house. <laughs> Diaphragm. Makes it hard for you to breathe. So now you have the weight of your whole body down on that. And you've got to use your legs to push yourself up just to get a breath. And it would take days for the blood to drip out enough to drain the life from you. And meanwhile, you'd hang there naked. And everybody would mock and scorn, for you were the worst of the worst criminal. That's why they broke Jesus' legs. It was merciful. Because then he couldn't pull himself up, push himself up to get a breath, and he would expire. No, Luca, later. So, when Jesus says, if you don't take up your cross, you can't be my disciple, what he's saying is, if you're not willing to die, you can't follow me. So count the cost. Some of you, maybe many of you, are familiar with um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, in which he talked about Nazi Germany, cheap grace. Everybody was a Christian in Germany. Everybody was a Christian. But it was cultural Christianity. It was nominal Christianity. When it came time to stand for your convictions, to stand up and be counted as a Christian, nobody stood up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus bids a man come, he bids him come and die. Perhaps you heard about that great missionary Livingston, right? Went to the darkest Africa to bring the gospel to peoples that had never heard about Jesus Christ. Somebody tried to dissuade and discourage him from going because it was dangerous. Surely there are people there that will kill you one day. You know what Livingston's response was? I died a long time ago. I remember doing door-to-door evangelism 
on a college campus and going to people with questionnaires, one thing or the other, and presenting the gospel, and then confronting them with the claims of Christ and saying, are you willing to be a Christian? Are you willing to become a Christian? I remember somebody saying, sure, yeah, I'll do that. I said, I said to myself, I said, uh, this went too well. I said, I opened up to a text like this, I said, are you prepared to count the cost? Are you ready to die? It's what we confess in our 1030 service, right? Christian, what do you believe and what are you willing to die for? I'm willing to die for my belief in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Or else, don't come. Count the cost. Jesus, I don't want to say this in a, a burdensome, overwhelming, kind of lower the boom kind of way, but Jesus doesn't need you. You're not doing him any favors unless you're willing to have him be more valuable to you than anyone or anything else. We need more counting the cost in the church today. No nominal Christian. No cultural Christians. It's getting to the point where it and this is one of the things I love about New York. You know, when I lived in Michigan, it was easy to be gray, not white or black. You could go with the flow. New York, you can't get away with that. You're going to be a Christian. You better walk like a Christian. You better talk like a Christian. You better live like a Christian. Because if you don't, you're going to get called out. You call yourself a Christian. You talk like that. You call yourself a Christian. You sleep around on weekends. You call yourself a Christian. You engage in drunken revelry. Christians don't do that. Look before you leap. Look before you leap. And then the parable of the rash builder, the last parable in the chapter. The builder could or could not build, but the king is under attack. He has to make a decision. Neutrality is impossible. What's he going to do? Right? And it brings us to the end here. Verse 33. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto. But as we say in the words of the song, emptied himself of all but love, taking on the form of a servant to wash his disciples' feet, to go to the cross, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. To undergo the horrors of hell on the cross in his crucifixion in order that you and I might be spared those horrors. And that we might share in the resurrection of the just. That we might share in that eternal life. 
And Jesus says, is that worth everything to you? And then verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. Disciples who don't live like disciples, Jesus saying this, all right? Disciples who don't live like disciples are worthless. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Jesus being so frank and so honest with us that we have no excuses. We ask that you would help us hear and help us heed his words. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen and amen.